And welcome back to another episode of Kolot. This is your host, Rabbi Hillel Kappenstein, Director of the Columbus Community Kolot. And it's a great honor and privilege to welcome all of you back to our next episode featuring Rabbi Daniel Gladstein. It's um, it's so interesting that we're recording this episode right after Rabbi Gladstein visited our community, which was an incredible experience, spoke several times throughout Shabbos and Sunday morning. Um, and very inspiring and really so befitting for Kolot because Rabbi Gladstein speaks on so many different topics ranging from halacha, hashkafa, history, and so much more. So we're going to discuss all of that plus more right here on Kolot. To sponsor a Kolot episode, email me, sponsorkolot at gmail.com. Once again, that is sponsorkolot at gmail.com. And without any further ado, allow me to tell you about our guest. Rabbi Daniel Yaakov Gladstein is the Rav of Kehilas Teferis Mordechai and Machon Magid Harakia Torah Center, public speaker, author, prolific researcher, pulpit rabbi, and teacher with a global following and one of the most popular English-speaking Torah teachers in the contemporary Jewish landscape. The Rav was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York, and now resides in the five towns with his wife, children, and family, where he furthers his research, writings, and teachings to the masses worldwide via the Internet, his local community, and holy Kahal Kadosh. Rabbi Daniel Gladstein, thank you so much for joining Kolot. Hi, Rabbi Kevinstein. How are you? Shalom Aleichem. Good. Thanks. thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. The pleasure is, the honor is ours. So uh, in, as a way of introduction, I want to know if you could share with us a little bit of your background and your upbringing. Okay. Um, I was born in... Uh, Brooklyn, New York. Uh, my my father's from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. My mother is from Brooklyn. Uh, but a lot of my uh, background goes back to my grandparents. Maybe we'll, we'll come to that uh, a bit later. But I went to Yeshiva Tartamima. I went to uh, Yeshiva Tiferes Yisrael, which is a Chavetz Chaim Yeshiva in Brooklyn for high school. Uh, I learned in uh, Eretz Yisrael for a short stint in uh, Yeshiva Chavetz Chaim in Eretz Yisrael. And I was in RSA. That's uh, Yeshivas Rabbeinu Yisrael Meir HaKoyin Baal Chavetz Chaim. The uh, Chavetz Chaim in Queens for many years. I probably have one of the longest uh, tenures in Yeshiva because uh, after spending uh, many, many years in Koilel, I was a Rav in Kugarn Hills. So I would I was morning Seder and afternoon Seder in the Yeshiva even after I left the Yeshiva. So uh, I was there for quite a while, but I have uh, many influences outside of uh, the yeshivas that I attended. And I, uh, the yeshivas I, I attended gave me a very solid foundation in uh, the fundamentals, let's say, what you would call it, of learning in Moser. Uh, but I have many rabbeim and mentors that I learned from and have the great fortune of uh, being able to share a little bit uh, what I've learned. And who were some of those influences and mentors that you were able, that you were so privileged to have? Okay, as I mentioned, uh, 
you know, when you go to Yeshiva in New York, so every year you have a, you have a different Rebbe, but certainly the Rebbe uh, in high school had a big hashba on me. I, I was Zoycha, now uh, Rabbi, David, Rabbi David Harris is the Rosh Yeshiva of the Chafetz Chaim network of Yeshivas, but back then he was my ninth grade Rebbe. You know, he taught me how to learn Gemara. He taught me Akasha, Taratz, Arashi, and Atoysis. So I was very privileged to have uh, a number of Rosh Yeshivas as high school Rebbeim. I had a Rebbe who I was very close with in uh, 10th grade, Rebbe Elio Meza, who uh, I used to learn with privately as well. Um, and a, a lot of uh, the influence in my life is, is my uh, my family. Um, my grandfather, my father's father, is a Holocaust survivor. He was a rub in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, not too far from Columbus, Ohio. I don't know how long, uh, but he was he was a rub in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania for only seventy years. You know that's that's a very long uh, tenure in in the rabbinic world. A year is a long tenure in the rabbinic world. So. Uh, and he was a Holocaust survivor, but but before the war, he was close with Gedolim in Europe, but he was close with Ramanacham Zemba, Rav Shlomo David Kahana, and his grandfather was close with the Malbim. So my grandfather passed away two years ago at 106 years old, Harav Mordechai Leib Blatstein. He brought me back literally 160 years. He he brought me back to his grandfather, who was close with the Malbim. I mean, if you see a my top right shelf, I have uh, my grandfather's set of Malbim. So when you grow up and you feel a connection to, you know, not not just Gedolim who lived in 1940, 1930. We're talking about Gedolim who lived in 1860. So, you know, I grew up hearing the Malbim, the Malbim. My grandfather was so close to the Malbim. His own name, Mardechai Leib ben Yosef Menachem, is Rashi Tevais Malbim. So... You know, you're growing up feeling connected to generations and generations ago. Um, it makes a big, a big impact. My father uh, was a uh, was a practicing is a is a practicing attorney, and uh, in his spare time he lectured for Eshatar Discovery. So he did Kirov across uh, the country and college campuses across the country. So as a young boy, I would uh, travel with my father to different Shabbatons or college campuses. And you grow up seeing how the authentic message of Torah changes people's lives. You could have somebody completely secular, someone who doesn't know Shema Yisrael, and they're exposed to the truths of Tarmi Sinai. And in, you know, in a weekend or in a Shabbos, in a Sunday, their, their lives are changed forever. So you grow up learning the impact of the message of Torah. Um, my mother's father, uh, Rabbi Shimon Hirschfang was a uh, stockbroker, but also someone who I spent a lot of time with. He learned with me personally, and his own hanhaga and his own dedication to Tarot Mitzvahs also made a very, very deep impression on me. So, you know, I always say I like to walk. I, when, I, when I grew up in Flatbush, I grew up on M and 31st. And, and when I was a Bachar, so I was in Yeshiva Chavetz Chaim, but I would some, sometimes... Uh, legally or illegally, come home for Shabbos. And I, I used to go to Harava Victor Miller. It was quite a long walk, maybe 45 minutes. If you look at my top shelf, top center, those are all, you know, Rev Miller's forum. So I even have a notebook of questions I asked him. Um, 
So Rav Miller was about a 45 minute, uh, 45 minute walk. And, you know, uh, being able to go, to go to him also had a very big hashba on me, but he used to like to walk. He was a big walker. I like, I, st- I, I love to walk. When I walk, I, you know, you look at it, you look at these big trees, you see that the bigger a tree is, the deeper its roots need to, uh, need to penetrate in order to absorb as much hydration and nutrients as possible. And I think it's the same thing with, with every individual. The higher you want to elevate yourself, the more you have to connect yourself to your roots. So the more you're able to absorb from from your parents, your grandparents, your your ancestors, uh, the more of an advantage you have in in uh, elevating yourself. So nice! Wow, beautiful. Yeah. Um, and maybe can you share a story, a personal encounter with the Victor Miller, something that really sticks with you uh, to this day? Yeah, you know, a lot of people, they, they would go to his share and they like to say, you know, they're a Talmud of his or they're very close to him. I, you know, I don't like to use that lightly because, you know, I was maybe eight, I was 19, 20, 21, something like that. And these were the last three years of Rav Miller's life. Um, but I did ask him many questions. And one particular uh, insight that he shared with me, I've been thinking a lot about lately, you know, now we're living in the age of uh, artificial intelligence, you know, that's the hottest topic, AI, you know, chat, GBT, and, you know, could you ask them a Shaila, could, you know, the, and I remember asking him the following question, why is it that in the Chumash, it never talks about the mind, right, and it, when it talks about Chachma, wisdom is in the heart, is in the lave. Why doesn't it talk about wisdom in the Maya? It never uses the word Mayach. It always says, And Ramiller looked me in the eye and he said, thoughts are fleeting. doesn't matter what you think. It matters how you feel about that thought. If just because you, you believe in Hashem. Okay, everyone believes in Hashem. And the next minute, somebody could take a misstep. Somebody could... Uh, do a sin. So what happened? What happened to your belief? Is it that you don't believe? No, of course you believe, but you're not feeling it because a thought does not have an impact on you until you feel it. So the Torah always refers to thoughts, the mind as the heart, because not until you have an emotion about the thought is the thought significant. So I've been thinking a lot about that recently because, you know, in the age of uh, uh, artificial intelligence, I think it's a very big message to us that perhaps all of our intelligence has become very artificial. Mm. And, you know, we know a lot of information. We live in a generation where we, even even yeshiva students, even people who are living a Torah life, we know a lot of information. We know a lot of Torah. Maybe we know more Torah than, our, than a generation or two ago. But the feeling we have to it is has waned. You know, in other words, we we believe in Hashem, but do we feel Hashem in our streaming through our veins? We believe in reward and punishment. We believe Hashem is watching us, but we don't feel it the same way our, our our grandparents did. So maybe Hashem is reminding us a little bit. We need to upgrade our intelligence to something beyond uh, the artificial. Mm-hmm. And can you give us maybe a practical piece of advice how one could take thoughts transition them, transform them into feelings. Well, you know, that was the whole uh, 
that was the whole objective of the Musr movement of Rabbi Salanter. Now, Musr is the most unpopular subject in our generation. Everybody likes Machshava because Machshava is not threatening because, again, it's just in your mind. Everyone even likes Kabbalah and um, you know, I like something uh, mystical or even Hasidus. But Musr has a bad rap and Musr is unpopular. But the the objective of learning Musr is to uh, basically review again and again and again the truths that are re- already evident and review it until it becomes more than just something in your mind. Uh, you know, Rabbi Sosalanta would say, the greatest distance in the world is the the space between your head and your heart, because mm. uh, everything is here, but it hasn't traveled down to the heart. You know that's, yeah. A- even Asaph had a good head. His head made it into the Marasamach uh, Pela. Wow. It's the rest of him. Um, but that that's the avoda in life, and there are many ways of uh, sort of transferring the database uh, that's in the head to, to the heart, whether it's. Uh, you know, I always feel that every Jew, whatever you, whatever capacity they're in, whether you're a Rebbe or a Shashiva, could be a doctor, a lawyer, a plumber, an electrician, everyone has to teach Tyra. Not just learn, everyone has to teach. Whether it's your classroom, whether it's the, your family sitting around the table, whether it's your wife, whether it's your husband, Find an opportunity, whether it's a chavrusa, someone who's not as learned as you, because putting yourself in a situation where you have to give over forces you to bring out that which you know in a a more meaningful, deeper, real way. And that that teaching information is one way to highlight, to to deepen that which you know. Mm -hmm. You mentioned earlier that Rabbanus is long for 70 years <laughs> and also long even for a day, right? Yeah. So um, when did you decide that, yeah, Ravonis, that might be my gig? When did that happen for you? Um, that's a good question. People think that, you know, I was like born a Rav, you know? for uh, People thought I was a Rav before I even had a name. But actually, it was not in the, not it was not something that I was uh, uh, planning on necessarily when I was a teenager or even in Kailal. Um, it sort of, for me, it developed on its own. It was pretty organic. It was pretty natural. I was learning in Kailal. And I, I was, it started, I was davening in a shul. And I noticed uh, the shul didn't have a rav at the time. And uh, the shachras was over in the morning. And people would just disappear after the shir shaliyam. So I suggested, you know, maybe we should have a dvar halacha in the shul. And this way, people, they're, on, they're wrapping up their tefillin. They, they could uh, catch some divritar on the way out. So, of course, they had a board meeting. And they, they, the board voted seven to six that it was a good idea. But uh, they said it was such a good idea. It was your idea, so you do it. No. <laughs> My idea was they should have some kind of round robin. So it literally started, I would prepare three hours a day for a three-minute varhalacha. And... I prepared it very thoroughly. I try to pack in very cogently, very coherently the halacha in an interesting way, an interesting format, interesting packaging. And somehow, you know, here, here's something that's very important in the world of Rabbanos. People appreciate preparation. 
You know, sometimes I hear people get up uh, for Shavu Brachas and they say, you know, I'm not really prepared. I'm thinking, pal, if you're not prepared, sit down immediately and stop wasting my time. Why do, if you're not prepared, why do I need to listen to this? It's not right. It's gazela, you know? So people appreciate preparation. And I have to tell you, you know, these were people, they were running out of show and they, and they stopped and they paid attention and they, and they listened and they started to record it and they would listen to it. And I learned a very important lesson from that, that people want to grow. People want to learn. People want to connect to Torah. But you need to deliver it in a way that's uh, suitable uh, to them. And preparation is really the, the key. So from there, I was recommended to give a share in, uh, in the youngest of Kugarn Hills. And then a certain uh, shul, there, there was an opening. And somebody said, I should throw my uh, my hat in the... And uh, I was the last man standing. So I became a rav in Kugarn Hills um, in a shul, Taras Emes, which was the first... Orthodox uh, shul in Queens. Um, it was a big pulp, old American pulpit center. It was like, you know, like a stepping stone type of job. And uh, people started coming, you know, at first it was, it was general, it was mostly older people. But people started uh, coming and uh, we built it up uh, a little bit until, uh, until it was time for us to, uh, to leave that neighborhood. But I remember uh, one one of the biggest developments in my life. I was learning at the time. I used to give a class a few nights a week in uh, Great Neck, and I had a student, Michael Levy. And Michael says, "You know, there's this new thing, uh, Torah anytime. You know, you might want to video your shiurim." I said, "Come on, Michael. There's seven guys that come to the shir over here. Well, you know, who's going to be watching the shir?" He said, "No, you wouldn't believe it. If you put the, you put the the shir up online, I'll tell you." I said, "What's online?" I was I was a yeshiva bacher. I want to tell you, I had never been on a computer in my life. I was already married, and this was not so long ago. Now, now I, I had I have to be, become a whole, uh, you know, a technical operator with all the different platforms and venues. At the time, not only was I, I never on the internet before, I never turned on a computer. I, I had taken computers in eleventh grade, but. I had, I think there were like eight computers and nine students. So I opted to be the student without the computer. I got a, the final was like a hundred questions out of 250 questions. I memorized all 250 answers and I did well on the final without having ever turned on a computer. So I, I remember uh, we started posting Shiram on the computer and I would go to the Torah anytime off, uh, offices and I would ask them, you know, how many people watch the Shiram this week? And they would tell me, I don't know, 700 people watched this, this week. And I said, wow, 700 people watched the Shurim this week. And now 700 in a day is, you know, maybe on Shabbos, there are only 700 people, you know, between the, the different time zones. But, um, you know, the, the, the technology really of, of Torah Anytime, and then uh, after that, many other later platforms really expanded the viewership and, uh, what what a Marbitz Torah could do. You know, it used to be if you're a Rav in a shul, so you, you had your Balabatim. So you had your 20 people who, who came to the Daf or your 15 people who came to the Chumash Rashi and uh, you're capped at that. Now, literally, you could be in your Dalet Amos and uh, the world is your base Medrash. You know, there, there's infinite possibilities. I mean, 
it's amazing how you know over the years individuals who who have contacted and you know and I'm sure it's the same for many many Magidishuram, um, but literally people from all over the world, you know, Midalit Confess ours, you didn't even know there were Jews in these places. Uh, now, I, I will reference uh, anyone listening should definitely check out the episode God's Reason for the Internet featuring Shimon Kol Yaakov. Uh, check out that episode after you finish listening to this episode and you get to hear the incredible story of how that happened and, uh, you know, an interesting uh, journey that uh, definitely takes some uh, very, very um, wild turns for the positive. Yeah, um, but look, you know, uh, with th- there are many venues today, you know. Um, like what you're doing now, you know, the, the the advent of podcasts also expanded. You know, not everybody's listening on computer. And there are many, many venues. I, I like to give Tarani time. Loi Mishpat Habachayra. You know, they were the first ones. But uh, Baruch Hashem, they, they, started, uh, they started many, many... Uh, trend. It was a trend. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Absolutely. And, and before we move to our next segment... Um, can you share with us overall? Was how's the uh, how has the experience of being a rub? How has that been? And maybe share with us um, what's the most challenging and the most rewarding. Look, I started the rabbanus pretty young, um, and I thought that what would be challenging would be: will older people, you know, have the I guess the humility and the respect to, to accept from a younger person. And that was never an issue. It's amazing. That was never, nobody ever came to me and said, you know, you're, you're much younger. Um, if anything, the challenge is the other way around. Um, the younger generation, let's just say, doesn't always have the same respect uh, that the older generation has. And Darach and respect in, in the Rabbanos is somewhat of a prerequisite for a person to be able to be makabel from a Rav or a Rebbe. In other words, a Rav and a Rebbe, they're friendly with you, but they're not not—they're not your buddy. They're, they're someone who loves you. And I think the biggest uh, lesson that I learned over the years is uh, to ignore. In other words, uh, this is a general life lesson. People are going to say things to you behind your back or to you, and they don't really mean it. They're going to say things that are insulting. They're going to say things that are hurtful. And I think probably the area that I've grown the most through the Rabbanus is really ignoring what, what people say and not paying attention to it. The best way you could deal with it is not being that's because uh, very often the people themselves they don't mean they don't mean it they don't they don't mean to hurt you or even if they do they don't know better. I remember um, really a couple weeks ago um, I was giving a shear on zmanim and uh, then we daven mincha and I was davening shmana esrei and I don't I don't make the tzibur wait for me for shmana esrei. When I basically get up to Maidim, I, I have them go ahead this way. I could say Kedusha with the minion, but I don't make them wait for me. But there was one guy I know, he he davens rather quickly. And while I'm davening Shemona Esrei, I overhear him saying to the guy next to him, he's like, I don't understand. The rabbi talks about Zmanim, so why does he daven such a long Shemona Esrei? Right? So I think maybe uh, 
when I started in the Rabbanos, I may not have been able to ignore that. Now it's, you know, it's part of the, it's uh, par for the course. It's part of, you know, it's the price of doing business in New York. Um, and and uh, ignoring things that people do and say is usually the best uh, approach um, in order to avoid any kind of conversation. But, but in terms of the most rewarding part is uh, education. Um, when you see people have a deeper connection to tefillah based on on shiurim that that you've been learning together, when you see people have a deeper connection to learning, when you people when you see people have an excitement to give over insights that that you've learned together, that's of course the most uh, the most rewarding part. And let's get to that in our next yeah. segment. I want to talk about some of that you've given over, but not just in shiurim, but also in your svarim and the books that you have wrote. Uh, that you've written. Uh, so what was your first safer? What was your first book? And maybe share with us a highlight. Okay. Um, so I'll answer that question uh, I'll twofold. My first published book was a safer in Lashon Kodesh. It's called Magad Arakia on uh, Purim. And the fact that I have a safer is to me it's like a mess. It's a miracle. Like how how in the world did that happen? How how could I how is that possible? You know, I had grandparents, great grand before the Holocaust, who were far greater, but they never had the they never had the the resources, they never had the peace of mind to put to writing and to publish uh Taira. So to me it's a great miracle that I have a, a Sefer. Um, and actually having a Sefer is a lot like having a child. And they're, they're actually, there's a, definitely Saraleda. Without getting into details, you know, the publishing process, the graphic design, the layout, the, the timing of making sure it's edited by the deadline, making sure it's going to be printed so that it can be sent to Eretz Yisrael, so it can be put on the boat that should get here in time for Purim. You know, you write a Sefer on Purim, if it comes Pesach, then uh, you're lucky if you sell three and a half copies, you know? So, um, but it's an exhilarating feeling, especially, you know, people, again, within the age of technology, you'll get a picture from someone on the other side of the world reading the Sefer, you know, a week after it comes out, I don't, there's no other feeling in this world that's comparable to that. So the Sefer on Purim, one of the reasons why I chose to write on Purim, my grandfather, uh, Mordechai Gladstein, he, his bris was on Tainus Sesser, it was named after Mordechai, and because he survived the Holocaust and he, he saw Haman face to face, he saw Eichmann face to face, and he, he saw Amalek and he overcame so my grandparents always celebrated their birthday on Purim. So to our family, Purim was like, you know, like a, a, the national uh, yomtif of our family. And I had some pretty, I what I thought were some pretty uh, amazing chedushim. I, I consider them gifts from heaven on Purim. And I just had a desire to to publish on Purim. You you wanted to you asked if I could share a highlight if if I could share just one uh, brief thought, and and 
really over the years I've really developed this further. But we know the Megillah ends rather unusually that Achashosh taxes the people, which is quite bizarre. I mean, that's the grand finale of the Megillah that Achashosh taxes the people. I mean, who cares that he taxes the people? So, you know, cutting to the chase, one of the major themes of the Megillah is how Hashem uses every plan of the enemy. He doesn't thwart the plan. He uses the plan and causes that plan to boomerang and to backfire on the enemy. So I was learning uh, Sefer Ezra, and in Sefer Ezra we read that uh, the Jewish people want to rebuild the second base of Migdash. They don't have the funding, so they go to Daryavesh if he could help them out. And the Pasuk says that Daryavesh said, all right, and he opens up the uh, treasury of taxes and he funds the building of the second base of Migdash. So it occurred to me, I think this is a gift from Shemayim. It occurred to me, well, he opened up the treasury of taxes. Where did he get all the tax money from? We know Dayavish was the son of Achashverosh. So the Megillah ends, Achashverosh taxes the people. Achashverosh dies, Dayavish inherits it. He gives all the money to the Jewish people to fund the building of the second base of Mikdash. Mm-hmm. So while the Megillah begins, then Achashverosh is celebrating that the temple will never be rebuilt by the end of the story. And you're going to appreciate this as a fundraiser. He's become the chief fundraiser to rebuild the second base of Mikdash. I mean, you see the irony. Now, when Achashosh is celebrating that party, he thinks he's celebrating the eternal destruction of the second base of Mikdash. Little does, does he know that party will bring the downfall of Vashti. He'll marry Esther. He'll have a kid, Daryavesh. So that party will rebuild the second base of Mikdash. So really, that was the first great fundraising dinner. If anybody asks <laughs> Rabbi Kappenstein, you know, where was the first great Torah fundraising dinner? It was in... Uh, it was in Shushan. But but more recently, I've de- tried to develop this idea that this is something we find throughout history. For instance, um, you know, we're going to Spain. Uh, we're doing a Jewish leg- uh, heritage trip on July 10th. You know, um, Ferdinand and Isabella, they want to put an end to uh, all Jewish uh, life and Jewish tradition. And But I always say, do you know, you know who really built Lakewood Yeshiva? Everyone would say, you know, Rabbi Aaron Cutler. No, no, no. It was built by Ferdinand and Isabella. Why? Because they're the ones who commissioned Columbus to discover America so that there could be a Lakewood Yeshiva. So they think, they think the Inquisition, they think on 1492, they're going to destroy all Jewish life forever. No, God says you're going to be the instrument to rebuild the greatest center of Torah study in the history of the world. So this is a common theme, you know, where Hashem used um, Stalin to be the one to recognize the state of Israel because uh, Stalin thought Israel would go communist. So he was the one who reckoned without Stalin, there would be no state of it. There would be no mirror yeshiva. So, you know, Stalin builds the mirror and Ferdinand builds Lakewood and Ahasuerus builds the second base Hamikdash. So, you know, that's an example of an insight in the Megillah, but it's it's like a flash of lightning. You know, you, you, you see history differently based on that. Well, we got some great stats here tonight. And I will say that dinner had a different budget than what our dinners <laughs> have um, on many levels. Um, you mentioned your, your trip to Spain, and I wanted to, you know, maybe a little more broadly um, if you could tell us about some of the other trips, that, tri- that trip as well, that upcoming trip as well, but some of the other trips that you've taken, some of the uh, things that you were able to see, uh, witness, discover, and how that's impacted people. Okay. If I may, you know, you asked me before about uh, some of my mentors. I would be remiss if I didn't uh, mention one particular rub, and that will segue us into what you just asked me. 
And that is when I, um, after I was married, I used to go to Harav Noach Isaac Goldbaum, um, who I, I'm very close with. And I used to go to Shurim. And um, and aside from being a tremendous guy in, in learning and uh, Bucky and, and a, a great Paisik and Tamar Chacham, but he was also very well versed in history, and he would he would always refer to uh, when he would talk about let's say Marame Rutenberg and or other Rishonim, he would mention yeah he was he was in Germany or he was in Prague, and the trips that he made to visit the Kfarim or the shuls or the cities where these Gedolim lived and flourished, it brought his shiurim to life. You know when he would talk about the Marame Rutenberg. You could see that the fact that he stood at the kever, the Marami Rutenberg, it it meant a completely different connection that he had to this great Rishon, who we all know as a name, but we don't have that. Like we said before, to many, it's just a piece of knowledge. It 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 doesn't. It's not alive, and that really, I guess, sparked within me the interest uh, to learn about the history of the Gedolim, and if I have the opportunity to uh, to be able to travel there myself. And uh, so I started joining some of these trips. At first, I, I started as uh, one of the speakers on one of these heritage trips. And then I began uh, with uh, with Lelechas, which is now Avir, organizing them uh, myself. We've been to many countries. We've been to um, Germany. We've been to Austria. We've been to Bratislava, Ukraine. Last summer we went to France. To me, that was you know spectacular to visit the city of Rashi. I mean, of course, Rashi is a, who doesn't know Rashi. Every even secular Jews know Rashi. Certainly, uh, Talmidim and yeshivas. But I tell you, Rabbi Kavansi, you know, I I was learning Rashi my whole life. But la- I decided, you know, I looked up Rashi's yard site, Chavtes Tamas, and I said, look, it's the middle of the summer. I got to get to Twa to Troyes for Rashi's yard site, and to me, sometimes even more than being there, preparing, preparing to be at Rashi. Now, there's some, we're not we're not certain that Rashi is buried right there. There is some kind of uh, monument, but we're not sure that's actually his kever, but it's not really that important. It is the actual kever. It's not the actual kever. Rabbi Kavansin, I want to tell you, I learned Rashi my whole life, but in the months leading up to visiting Rashi's kever, my connection to Rashi has deepened a thousandfold. Learning about Rashi's history, where he was born, who his rabbeim were, who his son-in-laws were, his ambition to build a bias of Torah. I mean, all of Klal Yisrael is from the bias of Rashi. You know that 80% of Ashkenazic Jews trace directly back to Rashi? Because in the 11th century, there are only 10,000 Ashkenazic Jews. He has five daughters, statistically, 80%, including myself, I have a tradition, Come directly from Rashi. There's a Lushan in the Shita Mikobat says, Rashi, Rabban Ve'avihen Shal Yisrael. He's he's the Rebbe, and he's uh, the father of the Jewish people. Before last summer, those were words. Now I feel it in my bones. Rashi's our Rebbe. Rashi's our father. So you know that's that, that's just an example of a. Uh, it's not a very um, exotic kever. Rashi. I mean, it doesn't sound that. It's not like you know some kind of New newfangled school. It's Rashi. I'm telling you, by traveling to these places, and then we we went to Rabbi Tam. I'm telling you, 
compared to what Rabbeinu Tam is to me now, I look back and I say, no, I had no idea who Rabbeinu Tam was. To us, they're all the same. The Rivam, the Ri, the Rihazakin, Rabbeinu Tam, they're just baletoises. No, now I feel like I could taste the character of each one. So, A, it, it gives a deeper connection to me and, and I, I feel it, um, it makes my shiurim and my presentations much more meaningful. So, we, we were in Turkey, um, I, you know, I have really amazing stories, if I could just uh, very quickly. Um, when we were in Izmir, I went to the cover of Reb Chaim Falaji. I, I just had it in my, I said, you know, in this world, I have to visit Reb Chaim Falaji. I, I have a very uh, special connection with the Sephardic giants. I'll tell you very briefly, we'll discuss it at a different time, a greater length. But after the Holocaust, my grandfather uh, published for the survivors the first Sfarim. And the first sefer he published for the survivors was the Lev David of the Chida. And I feel because of that, I have a special connection to the Chida. Over there, you know, I'm going over all some of my shelves, but the uh, shelf on the right side, second down, and the third down are all the Svarim of the Chida. And so I've been to the Chida. The Benesh Chai I've been at on Harazesim, and Rabbavadia I've been at. But I always wanted to go to the uh, Reb Chaim Falaji. So we went to Izmir. We went to the Kever Reb Chaim Falaji. And I was walking around over there, and I see one kever is covered with weeds. I take off the weeds, clean off the dirt. Rabbi Yitzchak Falaji, the Rav of Izmir, son of Rabbi Chaim Falaji. So I didn't even know what to do with that. I, I didn't. I never heard of Rabbi Yitzchak Falaji. So I did. We did a quick clip, you know, like a thirty-second clip. We put up on Torah anytime. We just discovered the. Uh, the kever of the Rav of Izmir, the son of Rav Chaim Falaji. It said on the kever, he wrote the Sefer. I said, he wrote the Sefer. That's all I knew about him. So that was the end of that clip. Okay. I come home that week. I'm giving shows, Pastor Kisista. I said, you know, I need a, new, a good topic for the Wednesday night show this week. I'm looking around, looking around. The topic that came to me was, is there any, could there be Ayin Hara if you teach Torah publicly, you know, a person is not supposed to draw attention to themselves. But what if you're doing a mitzvah, you're teaching Torah? Could that draw ayin hara? So I, I see a tshuva from Abchaim Falaji. And then after like a paragraph, he says, you know, the truth is that when it comes to this subject, my son, Rabbi Yitzchak Falaji, he wrote the comprehensive uh, treatment of this subject. And he, he then quotes paragraphs from his son, Rabbi Yitzchak Falaji. I had not heard of him before that week. I had just literally unearthed his kever, and he's like, "All right, thank you for uncovering me. Uh, you know, I want to, I want to give you a little gift." And I have a few really good stories like that of very short. I'm going to tell you one more, whether you want to hear it or I not. Wanna, I'm gonna tell no, you I want to hear it. I want to hear okay. it. Okay, um, this was during um, really right after COVID. Right when COVID was waning, you know. Um, it depends where some communities COVID is not over yet. Some communities, you know, it's uh, it's long past. This was like sort of toward the end of COVID. I was having, you know, a summer travel withdrawal. So uh, we made a small trip to, um, I needed to get people to go. So we put Karastir in there, of course. And then we went to uh, Ukraine. Fine. In Ukraine, I had on my list, I wanted to go to the cover of the Taz, the Sma. The Shalomeshev, the Yeshuas Yaakov, and they were all buried in the city of Lemberg. There was no official kever, but I know there was a monument that said, "In this cemetery was buried these gedolim." It was the end of our trip. There was terrible, terrible traffic. 
We needed to get back to the airport. The driver said, if we if we go to the cab, we're going to miss your flight. But I'm thinking to myself, I, I don't know. <laughs> One of the reasons I came to Ukraine was to go to this kever. If I'm going to go, I'm, and I don't want to come back here. So, Rivanisham, please, please, you know, I came all the way. Can we please be Zaycha? Literally, the driver said he thinks he remembers a shortcut. He darts out of the traffic. He's, you know, driving through the side streets. He says, get out. To get out. Where are we getting out? It's a hospital. Behind the hospital. I run out of the car. Behind the hospital is a monument for the Sma, the Taz, the Shalomeshev, the Yeshuas Yaakov, and Rav Mordechai Ze'ev Atinga. Oh, Rav Mordechai Ze'ev Atinga. I figure, you know, he must be very uh, eminent if he's buried with these other four tzaddikim. But at the time, I wasn't even able to make, able to make a real clip because uh, I didn't know who he was. So I made one for the Taz and the Sma and uh, the Yeshua Siakov and the Shalmeshev. And I said, also buried as a Mordechai Zevatinga. This was like on a Tuesday or Wednesday. That Friday, I come back at Sarev Shabbos. I'm preparing a shir. It was uh, Shabbos Chazoin. And I'm quickly preparing the shir. And I see an amazing question. The question is, we know the base leaders were destroyed because they, Shaloi Berchu B'Torah Tchila, right? Chazal said we didn't make Berchus HaTorah. So I see the question of the Mogim Giboyrim. Yes, we mean they didn't make Berchaz Torah, but we know that even if you don't say Berchaz Torah, if you say Avaraba, it's good enough. So they, we know they probably they said Avaraba. So what's the big deal? They didn't say Berchaz. That's the kasha of the Mugging Gibayim. Mugging Gibayim, of course, everybody knows. Mishabura quotes Mugging Gibayim. Come out on every page. So I'm giving the share, and then I'm thinking to myself, who's the Mugging Gibayim? And I look up, Reb Mardechai Zav Atinga. <laughs> and I don't think I ever gave a shear. The shear was on the Mugging Giboyim. Never happened before. But the day I came back, all of a sudden, I didn't know who he was, but he made sure I knew who he was. So uh, I have a lot of stories like that. And, you know, well, I feel that that by uh, pr- preparing the and learning about the history of these Gedalim, it deepens your connection to them at the very least. I think we have a, a topic for your next book. Uh, maybe you should make a collection of all these. Now, this is incredible. Um, I want to be, before we move on to the current uh, time period that we're entering, I just want to ask you, um, there's this, um, a lot of people have this desire to visit the places, the camps, um, Auschwitz and Bergen-Belsen and all these places. Um what what do you you know? What's your take on trying to connect to the Chorban of Europe? Um, you know, for some it's you know inspiring, for others it's depressing. What you know, and I guess at a more general level, um, what do you think the uh, the value of these trips are, and you know, what do you think the takeaway should be? It's interesting that with all my travels, I've never been to the camps. Um, I'm not resistant to going. My feeling has always been, I've, I have been to the camps because my grandfather was there. I, I heard from him. So I don't need to see it. It's enough that he had to be there. Um, but that's such a one day I think I would like to go. Look, I think that if somebody feels that they don't have a connection to Chorban Europe and by going to the camps, they will have a a more 
meaningful connection, then then you know that will deepen their uh, appreciation, understanding of what happened to the Jewish people in our own times. You know, it's unfortunate that the Holocaust was only 70 years ago and people, the, the, the new generation doesn't really know that much about it. So, you know, somebody told me who's in the Kirov world that even for the Frum community, uh, again, I agree, you know, whether I agree or disagree, that's not, I'm not, I'm not saying that my opinion, I'm just telling you what a certain uh, eminent leader in the Kirov world today told me that it used to be, of course, the base Medrash was the most um, compelling makayim to influence people to be committed Jew. And he feels that today, you know, and it's and it's hard to to fully support this, but I just want to you know bring out this point. But he feels today that the trips actually have more an impact on even the from community, certainly the 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 secular world. The trips are extremely impactful. Um, I would say you definitely need a combination, but there is a certain a certain. Uh, like, like we started off the class, you know, how could we bring what's in our mind and in our in our head as information? How could we bring it closer to our heart? You know, th- these trips really do bring alive the the history of the Jewish people, and it it is a way of bringing it closer to our heart. So, you know, a person could try on on Tisha B'av to think about the destruction and and all the various tragedies that happened to the Jewish people, but actually going to Auschwitz or some of the camps, you know, that that definitely will bring it closer to the heart. Sure. So I yeah, I think I think if it will enhance a person's appreciation of our history, then uh then it's a worthwhile activity. As we speak, we are in the month of Tamas as we record, and this will probably um be uh aired right before Shivasarvatamas. And, you know, I I remember going to camp summer after summer, you get all excited, like every summer, like camp has another theme song and it's schmuck and they have concerts and then boom, the three weeks. And it's like, oh, spoiler, like, why does this have to come in the middle of, you know, Benazman? Why does this have to come middle of summer vacation? Couldn't we just find another time, maybe in the winter to have this like between Hanukkah and Purim, like, you know, kind of like it's a spoiler to many. Um, but it shouldn't be that way. And I, I know you wrote a book on the on a darkness to dawn. And um, I know we can't go through the entire book, but maybe share a perspective how the three weeks should really be looked upon and what the connection should be to every Jew about it. Look, uh, you know, there's a beautiful commentary on Megillus Echa written by Ben Eshchai. And Ben Eshchai basically explains the Pesukim of Eicha uh, based on what their positive spin will be when Mashiach comes. So, for instance, the Pasuk says, uh, So all the glory left you, Shalayim. So the Ben Eshchai interprets as follows. When Mashiach comes, nowadays, a lot of the glory of the Torah comes from Lakewood. But that's not how it's supposed to be. It's supposed to come in So Mashiach comes, all the Torah will come from Tzion. 
which means that all the tragedy of the three weeks will be overturned one day. You know, there's an idea that uh, Tisha B'Av is called a Mayed because uh, one of the reasons is it's 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 a predestined time for for the redemption. You know, I always like to say, you ever notice? I don't know why this is not spelled out explicitly, but in Rajin, they say there's a connection between Tisha B'Av and Simchas Taira. What could the connection be? You know, you know how on uh, on uh, Yirmiyah was born on Tisha B'av, and Kabbalistic there's an idea. Yirmiyah is a Gilgal of Shlomo Hamelach. Shlomo is uh, Keneged Simchas Taira. Yirmiyah is Keneged Tisha B'av. So Tisha B'av Lera is what Simchas Taira is type. You ever hear this? This is a you know the nigan even that we use on Simchas Taira. We say It's Eicha. And if you end, but we don't end that way. It's you know, somehow with that knech at the end, you schlep out the echa, you completely transform the nigan of echa into a festive nigan. So you sometimes wonder, you know, we're gonna we're gonna keep the same echa nigan. You know, we'll just use that little knech and we'll transform. So, which means, which means that the whole three weeks, it's like primed for a, a turnaround. It's the turnaround. It's primed for that. Actually, you know, the Chida brings down that originally Rosh Hashanah was in Tammuz, Yom Kippur was in Av, and Sukkot was in Elul. And because of Chorben, everything got stuffed and crammed into uh, got crammed into Tishrei. In fact, um, Avram Avinu, in times of Avram Avinu, that's how they celebrate the Yom Tovim. Rosh Hashanah and Tammuz, Yom Kippur and Av, and Sukkot and Tishrei. Samar Rebbe has a whole Torah, why in Parshas Kisisa it says, Letkufas Hashanah and um and in, and in uh, Truma, it uses a different Lashon. One was before the Chedo Egel, the Yom Tam, or one month, which means that this whole Zman, it's, you know, we think it's it's soaked in tragedy. No, it's it's primed for transformation, you know, which and, and that's up to us. You know, I had this chus just to be in your community and the amazing observation of the B'nai Saschar, how the three weeks, you know, if this, this will be uh, relevant for Shavas of The three weeks has 528 hours corresponding to the Prakam of Shas. And which means that our objective during this time of the year is now how do we reverse the cycle? How do we reverse the cycle? You know, we mentioned and the the five tragedies of Shavas of you know, the Luchais were broken and the carbon Tamid stopped being brought and the city was breached. And they burnt the Torah and they put up at Salem and the Hecha. The Archlaner interprets that this is not referring to like five historical events, but it refers to sort of the downward progression of the Jewish people. It always starts from a lack of learning Torah, then it goes to diminishing the Tefillah, and then the Torah is completely dissipated, and then uh, then the religion is abdicated. So that, therefore. This time of the year, we have to figure out how we're going to reverse the cycle, which then 
the first step is always uh, strengthening Jewish learning and Jewish education. And, you know, that's what you're doing in uh, your community, you know, strengthening the the Torah study in your Kailal. And, uh, you know, this, this gives us direction wherever we are involved, wherever we find ourselves, whatever community we find ourselves, we always want to know, you know, how do we strengthen our community? How do we strengthen our shul? How do we strengthen our families? It always starts 528 hours in the three weeks correspond to 528 hour chapters in the oral law, in the Tarshabal Peh. That's where it starts. It starts strengthening uh, Jewish learning. You know, however we're able to strengthen it, you know, the learning ourselves, teaching and disseminating, you know, Harbatsa Satira. And I know you've written a lot about, and you've talked a lot about your grandfather, who was Nifter, you said, at 106, tremendous, Arichas Yamim. Um, I want to know if you could tell us a little, you know, I'm sure we could do a whole episode just on that alone, but if you can maybe share um, some highlights of your relationship with your grandfather and some of the things that you learned from him that stick with you till today. Look, uh, my grandfather lived like three storied careers. He lived a life before the war. He had tremendous sacrifice during the Holocaust. And then he was a rub for for 70 years after the war. Just, you know, for this occasion, just to mention maybe two points. My grandfather never felt sorry for himself. You know, he... He lived for six years in deprivation, without food, without home. He, wherever he turned, there was there was uh, torture, murder, cruelty of the of the highest order that no no human being ever experienced. He even would say, you know, he echoed the words of Yirmiyah Navi, "Ani hagever ra ani." And yet, you know, we live in a generation where when people go through hard times, how much time do they spend wallowing in self-pity? How much time do they spend in the trauma, dealing with the trauma? If you would have met my grandfather, you would have thought that he grew up, you know, he was he lost his father. His father was 26 years old when my grandfather passed away. My grandfather didn't even have a memory of his father. If you met him, you would have thought he grew up with two loving parents, growing up in the most nurturing, peaceful environment. He dedicated his life to encouraging Jews, breathing life into people, giving people strength. He didn't feel sorry for himself. You wouldn't even know he experienced trauma. You know, he was made out of, he was made out of different material than uh, your average bear, but it's a certain it's a certain attitude toward life that you don't afford yourself the luxury you know we we don't we don't wallow in self pity basically you pick yourself up you dust yourself off and you do whatever you can to build your family and to to help other people and you know he used the cruelty that he saw as a way to deepen his empathy and sympathy and compassion to other people which is a rare reaction. You know, how much time do people waste? You know, why did they do this to me? Why did this happen to me? Why did he say this to me? How much 
how much um, emotional energy do we waste on on unimportant things? And sometimes, you know, what people do to us or things that happen to us, of course, it hurts. But that's how that's how he dealt with it, and I think it's um, illuminating to see that dealing it with it with it that way sort of a person transcends even the most difficult uh, circumstance. He also lived with uh, what we call an amunechushes, with the, not just the knowledge, but with the, the real deep conviction of the coming of the Geula and the redemption of the Jewish people. He said he believed every day that Amunah Shalema, that Mashiach was coming, even in the death camps in Dachau and Auschwitz. And throughout his life, I mean, in his final conversation with my father, um, it was Pesach, which was... And my father asked my grandfather, you know, Tati, everything okay? And my grandfather said, yeah, I'm just waiting for Mashiach. And those were his final words. <laughs> so he was never Mashiach Das. He never diverted his mind. I remember one year on Pesach, he spent with our family. And after Yom Tov, he said, Zaydi, you know, how, how was Yom Tov? He said, it was beautiful. But now I'm just waiting for Mashiach. Now, we all say, everybody says they're waiting for Mashiach, but we say it, we just say words. My grandfather said it like, you know, you would order something on Amazon. It says it's coming Monday or Tuesday. The doorbell rings and you say it's probably, you know, it's probably your package. That's, he waited for Mashiach, like a reality. So like we started off, you know, there are a lot of things we know, but we don't have that same conviction, you know. We don't have that same conviction. And uh, connecting with, with our ancestors is also a way to uh, deepen uh, the ideals of the Torah and the ideals that, that uh, of our tradition. You know, I think one of the challenges when it comes to Mashiach is um, we, so many times they say, yeah, it's coming. Yeah, it's, it's, it's going to be this day or it's going to be this tragedy. Now Mashiach's for sure coming. And it hasn't come. And that's part of I, I think that's part of the challenge of you really of of feeling as we would say that's you know that every day we're anticipating it. How do you feel that we could strengthen ourselves to really yearn Mashiach? Here's how I like to think of it. You know, one of the stories that I like to say over that happened to my grandfather is uh, he was thrown into the gas chamber, him and his brother. And at the last moment, they were yanked out. They were literally pulled out of the gas chamber. So I always think, okay, God saved my grandfather. But he didn't just save my grandfather. He saved my father. He saved me. He saved my children. Because uh, I wouldn't be here today if my grandfather wouldn't have been yanked out of, of the gas chamber. You know, people say, if only I would see a miracle like the splitting of the sea, then I would believe in God. But right now, you know, I live in America. I'm a Yankee fan, which might be a mistake. And, you know, I uh, have a job. I have a nice shul. I send my kids to school. They go to camp. I go to a bungalow. You know, if I would see a real miracle, then I would have real conviction. So you say, pal. You know the famous observation of Yaakov Emden. He says, analyzing the state of the Jewish people in this world, after 2,000 years of Gullus, we've been hounded 
We've been persecuted, crusades, inquisition, pogrom, holocaust. After everything we've endured, Rabbi Yaakov Emden says, I swear that when I contemplate the miracle of Jewish survival, it is much more miraculous to me than all the miracles that God performed in Egypt. So I always like to say, you know, the, the people who left Egypt, they said, come on, God, you really want me to believe in you? They, show me a real miracle, like the Jew in 2022, then I would really believe in you. You know, in other words, we have to put things in perspective. You know, we like to say, we don't see anything miraculous. You don't see anything miraculous after a Holocaust to have an Eretz Yisrael with ha- Tens of thousands of loim de Torah, thousands of yeshivas, whatever your political view is, but to have access to Makoimais HaKadosh that we haven't had for 2,000 years. You know, in the last 70 years, at, at, um, in 1930, there must have been, there were many, many countries that had over half a million Jews. There were many countries, Morocco, Yemen, Iran, France, Russia. Do you know that every 10 years since God empties out a country, he says, overnight, all right, you're out of here. I know you're there. You've been here for a thousand years. Time to leave. So Morocco empties out. And Yemen empties out. Iran empties out. Russia, a million Jews leave. I mean, look what's happening in front of our eyes and our generation. You know, there's only one country today other than the land of Israel that has more than half a million Jews now. Even France is, uh, I don't know if it has a half a million Jews. Even England, I don't think, has a half a million Jews. The the, the brilliant Jews in America, we're the only ones who haven't figured it out. But, you know, we see things are happening in front of our eyes. You know, it doesn't doesn't happen in one minute, but just think about where we were. Think about where the Jewish people were 70 years ago. And think about where we are today. And if you don't see the hand, the open hand of Hashem in the most miraculous way in the history of the world, I mean, we're talking about bigger than the splitting of the Red Sea over here. The the flourishing of Torah Judaism today after 2,000 years of Golas, I mean, it's the greatest open miracle in the history of the world. The splitting of the sea was like minor leaves compared to what's going on today. You know, the, the, the plagues in Egypt were like, God God knows that uh, that in our generation, we need we need strengthening. So Hashem makes the greatest miracles in the history of the world. The greatest miracle is that you, you could open up a koilel in Columbus, Ohio, and people want to come learn. After 2,000 years of Golos, they want to learn the, the Torah. And the Torah we have after 2,000 years, it's the same Torah. It's unaffected. It's not diluted. There's no change. The same exact letters that Hashem gave Moshe Rabbeinu, we take out in my shul and your shul. We're still reading those the, the same the same scroll, the same words, the same mitzvahs. We're putting on the same tefillin. That's the greatest miracle. So the Jew says, you know, it's hard. It's hard to believe. If it's hard to believe now, it was never any easier to believe, because the miracles, the greatest miracle that God ever performed. Was is the con, uh, continuous survival of the Jewish people, and that miracle He made for me, and He made it for you. So never was it easier to believe than it is today. But we just have to, so to speak, you know, open our eyes and and uh, see what Hashem is doing for us.
I, I like how you said that Rakavemden, he wouldn't just think, but he would contemplate on that. And uh, I guess that, you know, that's the theme of our, um, of our uh, dialogue is, is, is transforming it to a feeling. What, what started upstairs makes its way downstairs. Yeah. And, and just, you know, just, just to emphasize, you know, for Yaakov Emden was, was astounded by the miracle of the survival of a Jew 250 years ago before the Holocaust. You know, what, what would he say today? Right. Amazing. We were very privileged to have you for a Shabbos, and we got we we were exposed to a little bit of to your Tyra, um, a little bit of your wisdom. Um, I, I felt like you know four or five uh, lectures weren't enough, but Baruch Hashem Torah anytime in the other platforms we could always we could always uh, download more. But I wanted to ask you, maybe you could share with us a little bit of what was your experience? What was your uh, what was it like for you to spend a Shabbos in Columbus, Ohio? But Columbus is a beautiful community. It's a storied community. It's the ca- capital of Ohio. And we always have to, like the Chavetz Chaim uh, would say, you know, the roadmap in heaven is different than the roadmap down here. In heaven, there were big cities. There was a city called Raden, you know, Raden. You look on the map, it's a speck of dust. What's Raden, you know? I used to hear about the city of Dvinsk. You know, how big was Dvinsk? You start Ashray, if you're on the wagon, by the time you got up to Soymech Hashem, you're in the next city. But in heaven, you know, Dvinsk is a big city because you have Torah luminaries. And Jewish communities are measured by uh, uh, Torah learning and Torah education. And it's really beautiful to see a city that has an established koilel because you know, the, the heartbeat and the source of vitality of a Jewish community is its uh, centers of Torah study. And, you know, if a person wanted to see the trends of a city, you know, is the Torah study increasing? So then the city is uh, generally trending up. And if the if the institutional Torah study are not, then it's trending down. So, you know, Baruch Hashem, Columbus has a, a kolel has uh, Bate Knesiyos, and, uh, you know, all of those dedicated um, ambassadors of Torah who are working to uh, bring the message of Torah to their respective city are really the, you know, the, the heroes of the Jewish people. And, you know, every city has to recognize that in order to upgrade and develop the the community, it's it's one ingredient only. It's Jewish education. And, you know, the best thing that that could happen to a city is to develop uh, um, yeshiva system, yeshiva network. And, you know, that, that helps the city, uh, so to speak, you know, what we call uh, trending upward. So, you know, call a kavod for everything that you do for your community and uh, for the koilel and uh, for, you know, bringing the message of the Kailal to broader audience through this uh, platform. Um, but, you know, really wonderful community and uh, wonderful people. And as a Sashem, you should be uh, successful in, in your mission. 
Amen. Yeah. And a special shout out to all the people that helped make it happen. Uh, there are going to be more than I'm, uh, uh, it's gonna be hard to say everyone, but that made it an amazing Shabbos and it was a treat for us. Um, I hope you, I hope we'll be able to host you again, um, in the near future. And thank you again for coming on Colotes. Um, this was an incredible conversation. I'm sure, um, many people are going to enjoy and especially how timely it is when we're going to be airing this. So thank you again and much. I guess I could return the bracha, the berchas hadjit, uh, for, at least for me, not for you, but uh, to, to continue all the shiurim, all the learning, all the incredible trips and everything else that's going on until, yes, Mashiach, it's on its way. Thank you. Thank you, Emma. To listen to all Kolot episodes and see upcoming guests, visit kolopodcast.com. We are also on all podcast players. Type in Kolot on iTunes, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, Podbean, and Amazon. Share with your friends and please make sure to give us a five-star review. Kolot is a project of the Columbus Community Kolo, a full-time Jewish learning center in Bexley, staffed with high-caliber Torah scholars. Ever since 1995, boys, girls, men, and women from all backgrounds and affiliations have found many opportunities to connect with Torah and mitzvot at the Kolo. Whether it's a study partner, an engaging lesson, or a program, the Kolel is your one-stop shop for all your Jewish learning. If you want to know how you can benefit from the Kolel, visit thekolel.org. That is T-H-E-K-O-L-L-E-L dot org and forever be inspired.